You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, good morning. Let's celebrate our kids and youth. Awesome. Great seeing you guys. Great being with you this morning. Um, We're getting ready for camps, and so if you've got a kid, uh, want them to go. Some of you would be real excited to get your kids to go for a little bit. And uh, make sure you do that. If it's finances is a problem, um, don't worry. 100% of every financial request that we've ever received that had a legitimate need, we were able to meet because of your generosity. So let's celebrate that for a moment. So no, no kid left behind. So uh, we're, we're, we're not going to let any kids get left behind. So we want to encourage you to get your kids signed up if you haven't already. Um, Today I'm going to be talking about uh, a higher calling, and uh, we're going to be looking in Samuel. If you've got a Bible, you can open it there. It's the English Standard Version, and we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. I couldn't get out of 1 Samuel. It's a wonderful narrative story of the life of Samuel and uh, God's work in his life. Last week, I was in, uh, doing the Mother's Day message, and we looked at Hannah mom who struggled with infertility and prayed and God answered her prayer and gave her a son. Today, you're going to see young Samuel as a young leader. So that's going to be really, really cool. Um, One unique thing about it, though, is that uh, Samuel hears from God, literally like a a divine voice. Um, How many of you would say that? I'm not going to have you raise your hand because everybody's going to think you're crazy. So (laughs) who hears from God audibly, you know? Okay. But anyway, uh, my point is, Samuel, he, he hears from God in a really unique way, as we're going to look, and uh, that's pretty cool. Um, I want to share with you a story about when I heard a voice that I had no idea where it came from, and it kind of startled me for a moment. It's kind of a comical story, but uh, to, to answer, uh, to get you going, um, I've got my phone up here. I want to talk about Siri. How many of you guys use Siri, the virtual assistant, on your phone? Raise your hand. Siri. Okay, I don't know what version of Siri you have, but you can have an American, Australian, British, Indian, Irish, South African, male or female. I have chosen to have in the personal assistant a British female. So she sounds very sophisticated, very intelligent, and she tells me all sorts of random trivia that I like to ask. Um, so the other day I'm walking and this voice out of nowhere comes to me. Here's what happened. It was a Monday. I was walking and doing a little prayer time, prep time, study time. Mondays and Wednesdays are my big days to kind of wrestle with the text and get, get with it and the scriptures, use it to my breaks to go pray and walk. So I'm walking down the street and I'm like, you know what? I need a break. So I'm going to play on my phone for a minute like everybody else. So I'm looking at my phone and then I'm thinking about Siri and I'm thinking, you know, I wonder if Siri can answer random trivia like name that tune. So I, I said, well, let me test her out. I've seen like my kids do this, like they hold up the phone and then Siri tells them like who we're listening to. Like, I can't believe that technology. So I'm like, I'm going to try that. I don't want to be uh, the technically challenged dad. I want to be in it. So I'm walking and taking my little break and I say, hey, Siri, uh, name this tune. Dun, 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 dun. Does anybody know what that is? What is it? Somebody hit say it? Beverly Hills, you got it. So I tried it, and every time I did that, she would say, I'm sorry, I do not understand what you were trying to, what the song is. 
So I did it again, and I did it again, and I'm walking down the street, and I'm holding it, going, what song is that, Siri? So I go on, and finally somebody yells out of a house, use Shazam, man, use Shazam. I'm like, Shazam? Okay. So a voice out of nowhere broke out. My neighbor literally had his window open, uh, and then he comes out and he's standing behind a bush and he yells at me and tells me, <laughs> to, and then he goes, it's Beverly Hills Cop, man. I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you. So the things you do sometimes, and then a voice out of nowhere speaks. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to see that a voice out of nowhere speaks. And Samuel is the man. He's a young boy and his name actually means hear from God. Like, he, he can hear from God, and it's really special because um, this is the time of the judges, some, uh, way before the time of Christ, and God is establishing his power and his presence on the earth in an incredible way. And the way he dealt with Samuel is the way he dealt with Moses. And nobody was like Samuel uh, for many, many, many years. It was a time of silence for the nation of Israel. And God's presence, people were questioning, where's God? Does he really show up? And Samuel is this boy who comes birthed out of prayer that the Lord heard the prayer of Hannah, the mom, and a barren woman gives birth to a child and she dedicated him to the Lord, brings him to the temple. Eli is this man I nicknamed Evil Eli last week because he's kind of wrapped himself up in all sorts of horrendous, dysfunctional uh, sins and he's kind of overlooked some major issues that are going on in his family and the religious priesthood, if you will. And Samuel's dropped off there, but now he's not just a child, he's a boy. And every year his mom would come up to like a pilgrimage to this place and bring him a coat. And he'd have to grow into this coat because he was growing as a young man. And I think it's very symbolic of him growing into his leadership. Sometimes uh, in life, you, you, you're given an opportunity, but you're going to have to grow into it. And that's exactly what's going on with Samuel. God's, there's a transition. This is a historical shift in a movement of God about to do something really, really amazing. But before it's going to get better, it's going to get a little worse. Watch what happens. Verse 1, chapter 3, he says, uh, Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Uh, Eli, just interesting enough, the word Eli in the Hebrew means like high calling. And so I've titled the message, Higher Calling. And it says, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no frequent vision. Meaning people were wondering what was going on in this dark season of time. The judges say this, that uh, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of like where we're at now. Everybody kind of does right. Whatever they think is in their own eyes, that's what they want to do. There's no authority. There's no biblical, strong uh, teacher preaching and teaching. The prophets are silent. Uh, God's revelation's not breaking forth as much as it was in years past. And why? Because people have walked in darkness for way too long. 
So what's going to happen? Verse 2, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, uh, so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. It's late in the evening, early into the morning. This is like uh, perhaps if you've ever visited a monastery, a place where the priests or the religious leaders literally, they, they live on the campus. They live on the facility. That was Eli. They would open up the doors early in the morning and people would come from all around, all throughout Israel, and they would worship. Uh, they'd open the doors and everybody come in. So Eli's asleep and the Bible tells us what's going on with him physically. His eyes are getting old. He's an old man. But there's more going on than that. I think oftentimes the physical reflects the spiritual. And I think the author wanted us to see that is that his vision for God is waning. He can't see near as good. He's going to miss it. Verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Again, a physical and a spiritual meaning, I think, here, that God's light and presence is still there. But look where Samuel is. And Samuel, probably 12 to 13 years old at this time, was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. The ark of God contained the the covenant tablets. It was... uh, a sign and a symbol of God's authority speaking forth. It was where the very presence and the power of God was at its strongest. And we find Samuel right there. And his name means hear from God. So there's a lot going on here. This young boy is a good, godly young man. And Eli is a priest who's kind of living a dysfunctional life. And we're going to see what happens, what God's going to do. He's going to break the silence. Verse 4, then the Lord called Samuel. We don't know exactly what he said. There's a comma right there to indicate, let's pause for a moment. Maybe the Lord said, Samuel. At least there's something. Then the the Lord called Samuel and said, this is what Samuel said, here I am. And then he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But Samuel, he said, I did, he, he said, I did not, uh, or Eli said, but he said, I did not call, lie, lie down again. So he went and he lay down. What happened is Samuel heard in the middle of the night, this voice or something aroused him. And it was the Lord is what the scripture says. And then he runs not to the Lord. He doesn't turn to the Lord, doesn't think it's the Lord. He goes straight to Eli, his mentor. And then in verse 6, let's see what it says. And the Lord called again Samuel. Now he calls him by name. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here's what Samuel says, here I am, for you called me. But Eli, he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. I think there's something you need to feel in in the text here is that uh, this is like a father-son relationship. Can you imagine dropping off your kiddo at at a sacred place, like a monastery of sorts or a temple? At a very young age, Samuel would have gone there probably three or four, maybe five years old at the most. And now he's 10, 12, 13, 14, 15. Most commentators agree, probably 13 or 14. Anyway, he's there and... Eli has taken Samuel in like a, like a son. It's a very close relationship. 
So he tells him to go lay down. Eli must be thinking, Samuel, what are you doing? Go to bed. Quit waking the old man up. I don't know if as a parent, if you ever had that when your kids, they, they come to your door. We started locking that door. We're like, sorry, no coming in. Don't wake me. But verse 6, and the Lord called again. And Samuel arose and went to Eli. Here I am, you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Verse 7, now Samuel did not know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. I think it's important to know is that uh, Samuel was a believer. And if you took this passage out of, concept, uh, out of context, you would think, oh, well, he didn't really know the Lord. No, he knew the Lord in the sense of you know, God was his, his, his Lord and Savior. He loved the Lord. However, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. There was a very special way in which God was wanting to reveal himself and establish Samuel, as we're going to see, as a prophet of God. See, if you were to look over in chapter 2, verse 12, Eli's sons, uh, they're called worthless sons, Eli's sons, um, because of their sin and their dysfunction in the temple. They were literally sleeping with women that were coming in uh, to worship. Uh, they were conning them in, I guess, to having relations with them. And there's all sorts of dysfunction. And the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 12, that Eli's sons were worthless. I mean, that's pretty rude. I mean, man, can you believe that? That person just worthless. Where'd you get that? First Samuel 2.12. There's worthless people out there. And why are they worthless? Because the scripture says that they didn't know the Lord and they're sleeping with other folks. They're sleeping with other ladies. This is not the same kind of uh, knowledge that uh, is mentioned in verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord in the sense of he wasn't established as a prophet. He hadn't experienced God's audible voice yet. Verse 8, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. And then, let's watch what Eli does. Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Uh, Eli has perception. He has a knowledge. He, he sees something. He's got experience. He has, he has, even though his eyes are dim, even though his ears can't hear as well, He's got a lot of years of wisdom, and it says that he perceived. Just notice that. The Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, verse 9, he's going to give some instructions. And therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if, I think that shows wisdom right there. God's not in, in, Samuel's not entitled to hear from God, but he says, go lie down. And if he, that is God, calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears so Samuel went and he lay down in his place. Now imagine that. You're Samuel. Your mentor tells you, God could be calling you. Nothing's ever been done like this in so many years. I, I mean, nobody like until like, like maybe Moses. Samuel, God, God could be coming to you and speaking to you. Go, go, go lay down. And if he comes to you, this is what you're going to say. Verse 10 and the Lord came and stood. He didn't run by. He didn't walk by. The Bible says he stood. God's presence stood there and looked, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Samuel had been instructed by Eli. 
Samuel waited just as he was supposed to. And I imagine Samuel being like, man, as you were with Moses, God, would you be with me? Like you were with Joshua, will you be there for me? He's probably excited. He's probably very eager because God's about to speak to him. And listen what happens. And then verse 11, then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, he's like, yeah, tell me. Tell me what's going to happen. Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And then Samuel's probably thinking, are there people walking around with one ear? Why two? But he is excited, not knowing what's going to happen. I don't know why the Bible tells us with two ears. Maybe because uh, Eli only had one ear that was working good. I don't know. Verse 12, it says, on that day I will fulfill, the Lord speaks, on that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. Things are getting more serious. Verse 13, and the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. That's a big blow. Now Eli served as a spiritual mentor to Samuel, Samuel is delivered a word from God about something's bad about to go down. There's a shift in the spiritual atmosphere. For the, why? For the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not, help me out, restrain them. You ever done something before and you feel guilty about it, just raise your hand. Okay, have you ever not done something when you should have? When you should have done something, should have spoke up, should have said something, should have acted and done something, but you didn't do anything, raise your hand. See, what happens is, is sometimes we think the only sins that truly exist are the things that I do. But I would argue the biggest sin that we often do is do nothing. It's called the sin of omission is what it is. It's when you know what's right, but you do nothing. You don't speak up about the injustice. You don't speak up about the corruption. You don't speak up about the heinous sin, the heinous harm and hurt that's going on. But you know, but you don't do anything. What was his boys doing? His boys, again, were pimping out the girls that were coming through the tabernacle and through the temple probably using their religious power to get what they wanted. And they'd been warned a very long time, and Eli, dad, does nothing. I'm sorry, man, if you let uh, sin and corruption go through your business, through your family, through the church, through the ministries, you're guilty like Eli. And God's not going to sit by and just let it go because we have a good God who, who is just, and he is loving, but he is just. So, what do we see is going to happen? Verse 14, the Lord speaks and says, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by a sacrifice or offering forever. In other words, he says, ain't no making this up. There ain't no fixing this. It's done. It's done. It's done. Nobody's atoning for this thing. I don't care what they bring in to worship, it ain't happening. So now, imagine you, imagine you're Samuel. Oh, God. I saw the corruption 
I saw the boys. I didn't know what to say. I, oh, man, I know this probably was coming, but Lord, you bring it to me? You ever found out something before that's kind of alarming or disturbing, some news, some information that you know that you have to kind of hold it and harbor it for a little bit, and then you start praying for trying to figure out what to do with the information, and then you're sitting there going like, how do I deal with this? I know it's wrong. You ever lost sleep over those kind of issues? Raise your hand. You lose sleep over something terrible that's going on. Samuel's that person. What makes it even harder is he looked up to Eli just a little bit. So verse 15, and Samuel lay until morning and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. As he's opening everything up, he's letting people come in and start to worship and do their thing. And he's probably thinking, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk to Eli. I don't want to do this. This is not going to go good. And look, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Because Eli knew, right? He's going to ask, because Eli had perception enough. He's going to ask, Okay, hey, hey, Samuel, come here, come here. Uh, good to see you this morning, son. Uh, tell me what happened last night. Look what happens, verse 16. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, that's authority, that's relationship. He's the father figure in his life. The son feels obligated. And he said, look at Samuel, what he says, here I am. And I imagine those three words kind of shook from his voice with fear and anxiety. That's the fifth time Samuel said that, here I am. What I love about Samuel, Samuel knows where he's at. He knows what's going on. Eli, he's confused. He does not know reality very well. He's got a very skewed view. His eyes are dim, but he has enough perception to know something's terribly wrong. God's doing a new work. It's not with me. It's with that boy over there. And so he wants to know. Verse 17, and Eli said, what was it that he told you? Samuel, what did he say? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. In other words, he said, lay it on me. Don't hold anything back. That's probably a really good place for Eli to be. He needed some tough truth in his life. Verse 18, so Samuel told him what? Everything. I can imagine there would be weeping. Remember an incident one time when a great leader uh, was caught into some struggle that was really damaging and harmful. And this young protege said, I can't believe you. I can't believe you would disgrace our church and our family and, and all that you've said and done. And somebody said, hey, 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 quiet down a little bit. And somebody else said, no, let him have it. Let him yell at him. He needs to hear this. And I think sometimes what we do is we think that we need to sugarcoat. We need to hold things in just a little bit. And Eli has enough perception to say, all right, let me have it. So Samuel told him everything and he had nothing from him. And he said, this is Eli's response. It's the Lord. That wasn't me. That wasn't your own imagination. That's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. In other words, he says, I, God is good and I've been bad. So, 
Scripture turns a corner real quick in the story, and it says that Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. What a defining moment for that young man to come toe-to-toe with his mentor who had dabbled with darkness way too long, and he confronts him. It was the, uh, the, the trial of, of fire for him. In the moment of great transition, Samuel doesn't buckle under the pressure. He goes, all right, God, I'm going to say it. I'm going to do it. And he confronts him. Now what happens, verse 20, And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Probably there was some cheering. Get evil, Eli, out. We're tired of the corruption. We're tired of the lies. We're tired of the deception. We're tired of it. And Samuel grew in that uh, location from Dan to Beersheba. That's 150 miles across Israel. In other words, his name and fame was going forward. And a prophet, by the way, just so you know, prophets in the scripture, they're appointed by God. That's one of the conditions. They're appointed by God and by direct revelation, and they're called into the office of prophetic work. The priests, on the other hand, through the scriptures, those folks are born into the family, like a family business. So you can imagine the corruption that can't happen in that kind of system. But the prophets are called by God, and a prophet, one of the marks of a prophet in the Old Testament was if they prophesy, say something, and it doesn't come to pass, then that person is going to be stoned to death. So in other words, you better be real sure if you're going to open your mouth and say something. Can you imagine the anxiety? Was that my head or was that you, Lord? But God stood there and he spoke to Samuel. As he was with Moses, he was with Samuel. As he was with Joshua, he was with Samuel. This is a new work. And Eli is not a part of it. And it says in verse 21, it says, And the Lord appeared again. At Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And so you ask, well, what's our takeaways? I'll give you several. Number one, I would say never underestimate the, the need for one another. Never underestimate that you need other people to help you through what you're going through. Um, see, what's really interesting to me is that actually Samuel needed Eli. He needed Eli because he didn't understand three different times. He hears from God, but he's young. He's not educated enough. He doesn't have enough experience. He's got the adventurous heart. He's courageous. He's just a young boy. He's very impressionable. And his name means hear from God. So he goes to Eli because he knows, Samuel goes to Eli because he knows his name means high calling. So he's going to the one that he needs. And Eli, even as twisted and weird as he is, and dysfunctional and passive, the Bible says he had perception enough to say, hey, 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 time out. This is the Lord. God's calling you. God's God's speaking to you. He he doesn't speak to me like he does you, but he's calling you. So this is what you're going to do. I want you to go back. I want you to lie down. And if the Lord speaks, you say, here I am, my servant. Speak to me. See, I think what happens in our culture sometimes is we forget the value that there's interdependence in the, in the Christian life. What we need more in this generation more than ever is a partnership of people. 
The older generation, you have been here, you have seen things, you have felt things, you have gone through the trials, you've gone through the tribulation, you know how tough this world can be. And the young people need to go to the old people and say, I need your help to get this, to get this figured out. Uh, Eli could offer experience because he knew what it was like. Uh, Samuel had the, the courage and the confidence to wait for the Lord and to go make the ask. You young people need to realize the importance of an older generation. There is a shifting and a passing of transfer of leadership all throughout our country right now in North America. Think about all the uh, spiritual leaders that have influenced your life. Think about the transition that's going on right now. But see, here's the cool thing. God's never done with his work. He'll always raise somebody else up. There's always going to be a, a new leader on the scene. We just got to look for them. And oftentimes they come from obscure places. And oftentimes, but here's the older generation. The older generation better help pass the baton. So important. I can think of a few figures that are on my Mount Rushmore of influence in my own personal life. I think of uh, my father, probably the, the greatest figure. When I do his memorial service, you watch. I don't know if I'll be able to hold it together. My dad is the greatest spiritual leader in my life. Remember, I went to him and I told him, though, we had a big disagreement, right? When I, right, right as soon as I started growing in my leadership, I said, Dad, I'm moving down to Dallas Seminary. And he said, son, that's probably the worst idea I've ever heard of. I said, thanks a lot, Dad. And so I go to seminary, I get trained, I come out, and then he says, what are you going to do? I said, I think we're going to go to Phoenix, Arizona. We're going to plant a church. And he says, that's another bad idea. I said, thanks a lot, Dad. But see, there was a weaning that needed to happen that my, my earthly father didn't have the strongest voice in my life, but my heavenly father needed to have that voice in my life. And so we moved out here, and later my dad said, okay, Dallas was a good idea. I do acknowledge that. In Phoenix, I have no idea about that. I do not think, do you know anybody? No, we don't know anybody. Why are you going? Because God's called us. Okay. Well, Okay. So we get out here, the church is starting to move and groove, everything's going, and we get, the, we get to this property, and I remember seeing it, it was a total wreck, total destruction. I remember walking onto the campus and feeling the very powerful presence of God saying, this is the place. This is where I've called you. You establish this place. You give everything you can. You tell everybody in that church that this is the place where we're going to set up a holy places where God's going to do great work. People are coming to faith in Christ. They're going to be baptized. They're going to be married. We're going to do memorial services. We're going to do it, Ryan. So I'm like, oh, I'm all in, God. So how do I do this? It costs way too much money, and we don't have a lot of money. The church was about 100 people at the time. So I tell my wife, sweetie, we probably ought to sell the house. Let's sell the house. Let's give a bunch of money to the church. We need to tithe more than we've ever tithed. We need to give offerings. I got to motivate the church. We got to do a turbo campaign. I don't know how we're going to do this. This is way too big for a small church. I got advice from other friends and family, and they said it's a bad idea. I said, the problem is, is I feel called by God to do this. So I lost friends, but I gained a new army. So then I called my dad. I said, Dad, come on out and see the property. He said, okay. So he shows up. He walks the property and he walks around. And then he breaks down and starts crying right out there. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is, a, this is not a good idea. I said, thanks, Dad. I really appreciate it. And I'm standing there with all my courage. I said, but God's called us to it. He said, no, I'm not done. It's not a good idea. It's a great idea. And I said, woo! 
Yeah! Do you really mean it? He said, I do. I don't know how we're going to do it. He said, what do you need from me? I said, you've promised an inheritance to all my brothers and and my sisters, so I need that inheritance. He said, son, (laughs) we're in Arkansas. We're from the South. We don't give up stuff like that. We got a ranch. I said, yeah, but we're building a kingdom out here, Dad. He said, fly to Arkansas. We'll sit on the back porch and talk with the family, and we'll talk about it. So we did. Got there. It was very heated. My brothers were so mad. I don't want to split up the property. Who do you think you are? You know, what's going to happen? I imagine these city slickers going to move out here and camp right next to me. I'm like, easy, easy, Duck Dynasty angry people. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, I don't know. I don't have it figured out. And uh, my, my dad says, let me think and pray about it. Go back to Phoenix and I'll, I'll write you a letter. And so I'm like, okay, how's this going to go? So I come back and Leslie's like, how'd it go? I'm like, uh, good, bad, I don't know. So I get a letter several weeks later. My dad writes me a letter and doesn't say much in it. And said, we talked and we made our decision. I remember they, opening that letter was a big deal. And uh, then he wrote a prescription. My dad's a psychiatrist. He wrote a prescription, and it says this. uh, Name, NVCC, date, 5-20-15. Prescription, you win souls, son. You change lives. Refill, forever. Signature, Dr. Robert Rice, dad. I said, wow, that's cool. And I go a little further in the letter, and he's got a huge check. He gave me that inheritance. I took it to my wife and I said, we're going to get that property. So I went to the church in the movie theaters and I said, give everything you can. Do all that you can. This isn't just about you. It's for the future generations. Let's establish a first church right on the freeway where people can meet and know and follow Jesus. And they did. And we did it. And everybody said, wow. Here's what I do know is that, ladies and gentlemen, we need one another. If you don't have a fatherly figure in your life, get a spiritual mentor. Get somebody into your life. You need somebody to speak into your life and encourage you. If you don't have that for your kids, find that family in the church. I don't have biological family out here besides you and my immediate family. And we're doing fine. Is it hard? It's very hard. Especially when you come from a strong, loving family. But I do know this is that never underestimate the need for one another. What a powerful influence that is when you look to other people to help guide you, strengthen you, support you. And that's exactly what Samuel did with Eli. Number two, I would just challenge you this is never underestimate the power of sin. Who underestimated the power of sin? Eli. Old uncle evil Eli. He underestimated the power of sin. He thought maybe if he just turned his head and didn't say anything, didn't look at the the depravity that was going on in the place of worship, maybe the boys would straighten up. They weren't straightening up. They were sexing it up. Bringing all sorts of uh, defamation to the name of God. And he didn't have the courage to say, son, stop it. This is God's house. Those are the kinds of leaders that are needed for this next generation. To quit looking at stuff, quit sweeping it under the rug, quit underestimating sin. Sin is deathly. Your greatest enemies are sin, Satan, and yourself. 
That's your greatest enemies. And when you think about sin's not a big deal, it is a big deal. Let me tell you something. It was a slow fade for Eli. Slow fade. It didn't happen overnight. Maybe he drank too much. Maybe he just sat around too much. Maybe he, he just kind of ignored, oh, my eyesight's going wrong. I don't know what my boys are doing, but it's not that big a deal. Never underestimate the power of sin. I think of a story of an individual man who had cancer. He was checked into the doctor. The doctor said, you have cancer, and if we can deal with this right now, we could probably help cure you and get you fixed and healed up and be good to go. It takes some treatment, though. Guy says, no, I don't want to do that. I'll seek my own stuff. I'm going to do my own thing. Well, then he goes back to the doctor some time later, and the doctor says, I told you. You have six months to live. See, my concern is, is what happens in evangelical culture. We love the hyper-grace movement of church, and then we forget about the issue of sin. And so then we forget words like this in vocabulary, confession, repentance, and we act like sin becomes our friend, or we say it's just a mistake. No, there's biblical categories for this kind of stuff. And so don't play the chips of, oh, it's not a big deal. No, sin is always a big deal. And so we have a wonderful Savior who we can turn to and actually always does forgive. And the atonement, you don't have to atone, Jesus did it. There is atonement for you, his name is Jesus. And if sin becomes your friend, you welcome it, then what happens is is there's a slow fade in your eyes, your spiritual receptivity darkens And then death and destruction begin to seep in. And it affects not just you, but there's a ripple effect on your whole family. And so never underestimate the power of sin. Number three, never underestimate the power of prayer. This is what's really cool. For you moms that pray for your kids, good for you. What a powerful influence that is. Hannah prayed for her boy. Did you know... um, Hophni and Phineas or whatever, the Eli's boys, no mama's in the picture. The boys that were sleeping with the girls at the temple, no mom is around. The scripture doesn't say anything about mom. No praying mom, no praying dad, nobody's praying. The boys are just wicked. Eli did nothing. Perhaps if there was a mama there, the mama would say, hey, Eli, you drunken fool, get on to the boys. I don't know what happened to mom, but Hannah prayed. Elkanah, Hannah's husband, prayed. They did everything they could for their kid, and they were praying people, and then we get Samuel. Never underestimate the power of prayer. God wants to work through you and in you, and he uses prayer as the channel to accomplish his purposes. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. I'll tell you a story in closing. I remember years ago, when I first became a Christian, I was down in College Station, and uh, we were at this conference called uh, the Passion Conference. And it was a, a conference that where maybe you know they do like rock and roll music. It's really pretty cool. And it's a worship conference. I'm a young guy. And I'm standing in the line. I said it in the first service. It was like a, a food place or whatever. But actually, now that I think about it, it was actually a porta potty. I'm going to tell you a porta potty line story. Okay? So I'm standing... In the porta potty line, after I think after that, I got my, my, my drinks and everything else and went back to the concert. I'm standing in the line and I hear this guy pouring out his heart. 
You say, I'm so broken. I'm going to leave the church. I'm going to leave the ministry. I can't do this anymore. I'm burned out. And I remember I met this guy and I kind of got closer to him and I found out his name was Josh. And he told me about his story about how he was struggling. And then somehow we got into Psalm 63 and I'll just read it to you. You can close your eyes and listen to this a heartbreaking prayer of David who's burned out. And he says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. I said to Josh, I said, Josh, look, the psalmist David gets burned out. He can turn back to the Lord and God will restore him. I said, how about Psalm 63 be your story? So I prayed for him right there. And then I wrote down this note in 1997 in my Bible, stuck it in Psalm 63. And I said this, I said, hey, Ryan, pray for Josh that God will use him and his ability for music to give God all the glory everywhere. And maybe, Ryan, one day we, <laughs> what am I doing? One day we may see each other again I met him at College Station, and we prayed together and gave him Psalm 63. He's at a community college in Fort Worth, Texas. So I write that down. So years go by. I'm a river guide in Colorado, in Buena Vista, Colorado. Been leading people to Christ, having an influence and an impact. I get discouraged. One morning, I open up my Bible. I find Psalm 63, and I'm like, man, that's a cool story. Wonder if I'd ever see him again. I'm rowing down the river. I lived in Arkansas. He lived in Texas. We're sitting there. I'm rowing down the river. And I get to the Hecla Junction. It's the half-day pullout for Browns Canyon. And I'm going to the all-day, class four, Whitewater. And I'm the guide. And I look over and I see this guy like singing and clapping with these young people. And I'm like, man, that's cool. Look at that dude. Huh. So I'm rowing. And all of a sudden, this guy like runs to the edge. And he goes, Ryan? I was like, looked at him, I'm like, okay, y'all forward to, I don't know who that guy is, let's go. <laughs> and then he goes, Ryan, it's me, Josh. Is that you? I look over and I'm like, oh my God, I was reading about him this morning. Are you from College Station? He goes, yeah, it's me, I'm a worship leader now. Psalm 63 came to pass. I said, pull over, let's go, let's go talk to this guy. So I go talk. I say, Josh, I can't believe it, man. I can't believe it. He goes, I can't believe it either. I said, man, that is so powerful, so cool. I was just praying for you. I've got you in a sticky note in my Bible. <laughs> He's like, I'm glad it's there. I said, dude, God's good, isn't he? He goes, Psalm 63 is my mantra. It's my anthem. I was like, man, that's good. I, I am more of a believer than ever. <laughs> God is good. Never underestimate the power of prayer. It changes people's lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. You're just good. I pray for a higher calling on all of us. Higher, Lord. Research shows that 87-something percent of people pray all the time, at least three times in a month or two or whatever. But God, I pray we'd be praying people without ceasing all the time. Strengthen us, renew us, refresh us to live out a higher calling. Never belittling or downplaying sin. And Father, looking to other people to help us to gain in our strength. 
And thank you, Lord, for all the people that have prayed for us in times past and given us opportunities to grow into this higher calling, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, everybody said, amen. Hey, I want to encourage you and thank you for giving financially to this church because you do that, we can move forward. And the church is continuing to grow. Uh, I've had somebody come up to me just right after the first service and say, hey, how do I give? Uh, you know, I said, there's giving boxes in the back. Oh, great, I didn't know where to put it. But if you want to give financially because you love this church, give. Give generously. If you're new here, don't worry about giving anything. We have a gift for you at the Connection Corner. But giving helps fuel and fund the ministry. And it puts our money where our mouth is, that we really care about God's work in the church. So thank you again. We're going to continue to worship. Will you go ahead and let's stand up. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.